0: our series for the very first time this afternoon, our special guests Johnny and Marcus Kelbetsa, Johnny CEO of Twynum Investments and Marcus of Bridge Lane Group. Gentlemen pleasure having the opportunity to have you on the program. Before we get into your investments and, and what you've both achieved throughout your careers, which is remarkable, I want to take you back to the history of, of the business, the history of the family business in particular. Johnny, tell us about your, your father, John, as I understand it, he grew up in West Germany in the 1930s. Give us some, some insight into the family's background if you could.
1: So dad was born in 31 in Cologne, or Curland as the Germans say. Dad was reasonably well off but he was sort of mother without a mother who was brought up and sort of had other ladies acting as the mother figure. Obviously World War II was happening but dad was too young to sort be involved thankfully. Post the war he... Like, Started working, and um, his dad was sort of a trading background. And he got involved in working for a trading business there, and then in '54, so at the age of 23, decided to leave Germany, and he sort of headed east. Ended up sort of stopped off in Bangladesh on the way through. Ended up in Australia in Perth, and a very short stint on an oil rig, and then went to Adelaide um, for a little while, and then ended up in Melbourne working for Heiner Brothers, and like. Heine brothers still exist and a couple of generations later um, today. I'm um, Do doing a totally different business than what the, the, business, than the family started. Yeah. Tell us about the, the move to Australia in, in 54. What, what prompted that? I can't tell you. No idea. Like, Dad's never been one really to talk about his life early on. So, um, yeah, I can't exactly what drove it. I can't
0: say. So and so Heiner brothers in Melbourne and then moved up to Sydney and then as i understand it there were a couple of business trips between Sydney and and China he was one of the few that were allowed to to travel there actually when dad worked for Heiner brothers they wanted to um,
1: do some business out of uh, China and Australians weren't allowed in China then but Germans were so dad had a German passport etc back then I assume however that worked and so he was based in um, in China for a number of years and sort of dealt with importing steel and exporting soybeans and exporting soybeans into Europe um, to get the steel in and sort of somewhat barter trading etc and then eventually um, I think they had a disagreement about payments and Dad left Heine Brothers with and another colleague from Heine Brothers Rudy Meth um, and started their own business called Methco. At the time and, and yeah, for a number of years they worked together and then Rudy decided to retire and he retired for a number of years and then decided he was bored of retirement and then came back and started working for dad so that's sort of the history of business so dad's of, first success was in trading so and steel and steel trading so everyone says oh, i've made money in agriculture etc but actually the foundation was the steel trading business and it's an interesting anecdote or it's not an anecdote but a story so when they traded into Iran and they had a shipload of steel and uh, it's when the Ayatollah took over and the Shah got overthrown they actually had to bribe a harbour master to get the ship out if it wasn't for getting that ship out dad would probably be bankrupt and we wouldn't be here today
0: incredible so the background in, in trading and then the move into what the family has traditionally been known for is in agricultural assets, uh, I read that in, I think it was 1969, there was the purchase of a, of a hobby farm in Picton, about 100 acres or so. Tell us about that.
1: So it's called Razorback, it's on the Razorback Range, so if you drive from Camden to Picton you go up and down. and. That ridge line is sort of the Razorback Range, and uh, yeah, I can't remember the actual size at the time. But we used to sort of go out there on weekends or, or Sunday lunches, really, with Mum's family. We used to we all sort of congregated there on Sundays and sort of had family get-togethers, and that was the first sort of knowledge of anything to do with anything apart from like what well, a country sort of style background this is what it looks like oh there's a horse and all those sorts of things i started horse riding there yeah.
0: over the next decade or so Twainham Agriculture steadily grew its holdings acquiring further agricultural assets across Australia tell us about the growth of the business in, in say the 70s so
1: early 70s bought property called Ramorny Station at Grafton and a number of properties sort of just north of Cooma um, which we called the Umarella group, a property at Manila uh, called Pembroke and then after that was a property up at Warialda called Gunny Waralda and a property at Braidwood which was Braidwood Station and then that was all sort of through the 70s, they just sort of ticked on one uh, sort of every year or two years etc and then in 1979 bought Nauru Pastoral Company which was seven properties I think Um, and Nauru was a Coke Amatil business and they just sort of, I don't know how they ever got involved with the properties, but um, you know,
0: they, they moved out, yeah. And, and just out of interest, and you may not know the answer, but how did he go about building the business and, and sort of financing some of these transactions? Was he leveraging the, the assets that he held to buy new properties or well, they're still trading? out of the, tra- the trading profits of the other business at the time and
1: then in the early 80s, um, had Bridge, bridge Oil, yes, so Dad bought a chunk of Bridge Oil and then the Australian Agricultural Company he did a bit of corporate trading, he was sort of, sort of the early corporate rating guys and a couple of businesses he did that on and then in sort of the mid-80s shut the steel trading business down when BHP wanted to get away from selling steel to actually people working as an agent and Dad said he wasn't going to be an agent so um, that's when that That business stopped and we really became full time farmers. And that worked through to sort of call it 2010, and then we sort of started moving our way out of that.
0: Marcus, I thought we'd bring you in here. The the international expansion into Argentina occurred in 1982. He founded a company called LIAGSA in Argentina in '82. Where did he, what prompted him to see the opportunity in, in Argentina do you think?
2: Yeah, so I mean it, it was LIAG Argentina, um, actually it was uh, a German acronym, I can't remember what it is. Uh, it's like that long. Yeah, yeah, very long one <laughs> but, and uh, it was always the, the perennial question is what does LIAG stand for and nobody could answer it other than him. Uh, you know, I think Argentina has always been an agricultural powerhouse so when he made the decision that he wanted to go into agriculture, I mean that was a destination he was, he was interested in exploring, he was always you know. A traveler. Um, he was, I guess a risk taker, entrepreneur and, and, and was keen to, to explore um, new regions. He, he had also met my mother, but that was in 19 yeah 1980, I think 19 well, 1979. Um, and she was from Argentina so uh, that kind of that was that was something that, that probably played on, on the mind of starting something over there as well. I don't know John, if you want to add anything else. Yeah, I
1: think yeah. that's pretty well lit and yeah. yeah it started with one farm and grew to yeah. half a dozen. Yeah
0: incredible. And tell us about your, your early exposures to, to the business if you could Marcus.
2: Going back in terms of you know my upbringing and I guess you know we'll talk about that but you know I was born in California raised between California and Argentina. And I think, you know, my early exposure was really growing up partly on the farm over over a period of years, um, not my entire childhood, but but definitely for, for extensive periods. Schooled on the farm? Schooled on the farm, yeah. We didn't, it was a little, you know, the, the, I guess the main farm that we had closer to Buenos Aires called Las Balas. It was, you know, beautiful farm that, um, you know, had dairies and and, and uh, livestock and cropping as well, Well, eventually had cropping. But I had a school on there, a public school, and, and, and you know, I was able to be brought up there. Um, yeah, it was very grounding.
0: And the, the travel between California and, and Argentina, how different were the, the two cultures and the two countries, and, and what did you learn in those sort of formative years? Super different, obviously. <clears throat> um, you know, Argentina still today is, is considered you know, an emerging uh,
2: slash frontier economy, and, and California was, was what it is. Um, you know I think I'm very grateful for that experience of been able to go between California and Argentina and, you know experience two different polar um, I guess polar opposites of, of how could um, potentially be brought up two languages obviously I speak both fluently and I'm very grateful to, to have been able to do that but I, I think for me it was really um, you know living in Buenos Aires was not what I what I enjoyed about being Argentina living on the farm at those times and just being a kid on the farm and you know these are very young years you know I was yeah you know, between two and 10 at that period so um, yeah I mean you you can't fault it in terms of a in terms of lifestyle experience growing up as a kid on a farm yeah and I
0: wish I could have that with my children but it's not going to be the case in things are things are certainly different now Johnny I want to bring you in you joined the business as chief operating officer in around about 91 tell us about your upbringing if you could and then how you first came to be involved in in so I spent a lot of holidays
1: on the farm sort of from the early 70s. Always interested in the farm. Horses are always an integral part um, of what we did on the farms etc. I actually became a director of the company in 84 I think or 85 something like that and dad was always very open about sort of business and from when I left school and even before that night like, talking bits and pieces of what was going on. And then I went to university to economics at Armadale and then I did a master's in the US and worked for like sort of a year in the cotton trading business in the US but also in South America with them, which was a good eye opener. And uh, yeah, came back from doing my masters and sort of stepped into the day-to-day operation of the business. We were large the largest and we grew from there quite a bit.
0: And the 90s was a, was a pivotal period for the business. There was a bit of trading going on, selling out of, uh, of div- divesting rather of some assets and, and acquiring of other assets. When you joined as, as COO in 91, you obviously, as you said, you'd been a director I think since 85, but what were some of the key activities that you were involved in throughout that 90s period?
1: Well, it's... As you said, we were buying and selling a lot of stuff Um, so that was, that took up a chunk of the time, Uh, especially when we bought collie cotton, we had the cotton trading business and the extra cotton gins, that was uh, cotton, we handled like 25-30% of the cotton crop back then, Um, wasn't particularly profitable and that's why we shut it down over time. Uh, It was a high risk, low return business and Eventually we said that doesn't make a lot of sense. And obviously just trying to make sure the day-to-day operations of the farms were where we wanted them to be. But we also did a lot of pioneering. So we pioneered cotton growing in Southern New South Wales so at Hilston and in the Riverina. Like today that's a I don't know, $700 million dollar industry or whatever it is and um we were the first ones there so pretty proud of what we achieved there and we did similar in Argentina, like think at the lot to, which is a property in Salta was just scrub country and became a 30,000 hectare irrigation property.
0: We'll touch on it later, uh, but innovation's been at, at the core of the business for so many years now for, for decades actually. But but what do you think drove that innovation or that innovative mindset? I think so a lot of Dad had that vision of sort of
1: what we wanted to do in Argentina, but sort of the when you're back in Australia, that sort of that frontier leading as we did. Some of it came from Dad, but also I had that interest. I guess just trying to do things differently or better, and it was to our detriment really, because a lot of that early stage trial and error cost a lot of money. So a lot of people have sort of looked at it and went, what the hell are you doing that for? And they fail and they go, I told you so. And then like half a dozen years, 10 years later, everyone's doing it. So look, it, it's what we like to do. Um, I still do the same today in different fields. Like Today, my business is about investing in really early stage ideas for decarbonisation, like that's our, our core interest. We have my like property and other things which have a, a bigger chunk of our money um, invested, but it's not where our day-to-day passion and interest is.
2: Yeah. I mean, just, just to add to that innovation side, I think it's part, again, that you know being an entrepreneur and, and, and I guess that coming down to, to Johnny and ultimately to myself as well, you know. That was always important to, to both businesses, Twineman and LIAC, you know, and it was spread through the culture of, of the teams and the executives that subsequently continued to run the businesses and, and you know i guess speaking to argentina it was very well regarded that it was one of the the greatest innovators in terms of operations and and taking on new technology whether it's seed genetics or or machinery we were always kind of a front runner with that
0: just before we move on, Marcus, you moved to Australia in '01. You studied at the University of Sydney, and then you went on to become an executive director of the business. I think for a period of four or five years, from '05 to '09. To Firstly, the the move to Australia um, challenging was was that a sort of a challenging period of your life? Did you you know t- tell us about the the sort of journey?
2: Yeah, so I mean, my, my whole childhood was schooling between. The US-Argentina had periods, especially when I was on, at school on the farm, it was in Spanish, but throughout secondary school it was all in, in English, uh, under US curriculum, whether it's international school, Buenos Aires, or back in California, so I actually did a year in Argentina before I moved here, did Ag Science, um, tertiary Education, Spanish, and that was actually quite quite challenging. So I felt like I was already on the back foot in terms of my education, so I said, you know, I might. I might, uh, I might move to Australia. Having said that, and probably Johnny's smiling here, is that I had met my my wife today, Sally, um, back in 1999. Between moving from the northern hemisphere to the southern hemisphere, I had an eight month, I guess, sabbatical between starting university and. And I had met her, and I guess that was another you me another for
1: me factor pushing you to ask her on that date either yeah, yeah, yeah. or maybe I need to pay well, you in no, there's, there's a few people that would be, there's a few people would be arguing who is the instigator of that date but, but um,
2: now ultimately you know I think Argentina was also going through uh, what they call the, the peso crisis of 2001. you know it just it, it just wasn't the same place, and I think people you know, fall in love with Australia for, 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 for many reasons, um, and one of it's just the, the um, you know, lifestyle, you can live here versus over there. And I, and I just, I did not want to be in Buenos Aires. That was that was very clear in my mind. And, and uh, you know, going to university and
0: being on the farm wasn't going to work either. Johnny, just to give us some some context of the size and scale of the business, I think by mid-2005, thereabouts, there was 400,000 hectares of land in Australia, 80,000-odd hectares in, in Argentina operations, clearly in cattle production, in grain, in, in cotton, to name a few. Tell us about the size of the business by the, you know, the early thousands up to say
1: 2010. So, I can't pick, I don't remember the actual years of, because as we said, plenty of turnover of bits and pieces, but yeah, 400,000 hectares, so we're the biggest landholder in New South Wales. We are the largest irrigator by a fair way, number one irrigator of cotton, number one rice producer. Top ten wheat in the country, top ten sheep in the country, top twenty of cattle and feed lotting. Uh, we handled a quarter of the Australian cotton crop. We cotton gin. I don't know what what the percentage was. Probably five to ten percent of the crop. Argentina back then was. I'm not sure. Like today, will perform. It. Most recently, it was sort of producing 300,000 tonnes of crop. We weren't doing that much back then. It was still, it, it was still, a, it would have been a couple hundred thousand tonnes of crop and, and a bunch of cattle running around. Um, we were still developing the, the Argentine irrigation uh, projects, and we tried, we entered into a new one up in the north in a different province, and yep. that didn't work out. So, we'll. Busy, just travelling around, um, yeah, looking at, at opportunities. I think you know the scale of the, the farms. You know, I guess a
2: lot of people compare them to northern, the Northern Territory or Northern Queensland farmland. But you know, the, what, what's forgotten is the intensity of, of, of the farm operations as you come further south and you get into cropping, become much more intense. So the area might not be. Um, EASILY UNDERSTOOD IN TERMS OF THE AMOUNT OF PRODUCTION THAT WAS GENERATED OUT OF THOSE FARMS. AND ARGENTINA SIMILARLY, I MEAN, IT IS uh, AN EXTREMELY INTENSE FARMING OPERATION. AND, YOU KNOW, YOU GET THREE CROPS EVERY TWO YEARS, um, YOU KNOW, WITH ROTATIONS AND SO FORTH. SO YOU you DON'T GET THAT REALLY ANYWHERE ELSE IN THE WORLD OTHER THAN MAYBE, YOU KNOW, PARTS OF UKRAINE AND, and, YOU KNOW, SOME OTHER BLACK SOILS AREA. SO, you you, you, YOU KNOW, YOU CAN STILL GROW A CROP IN THE SUMMER, YOU CAN GROW A CROP IN THE WINTER. You know, you can't can't do that in in many other locations. So, yeah, just the intensity, I think, of what we were doing is is something that was quite unique.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong, but in about 2009, 2010, thereabouts, the company decided to divest of a lot of its assets. Obviously, there was the water entitlements to the federal... uh, water entitlements to the federal government. There was the sale of land to Macquarie Pastoral and... and you know, quite a number of other activities. What, what made that time uh, or that opportunity the right time for the business to begin to diversify into other streams and sell down a lot of its traditional holdings?
2: Yes, I mean, I think, you know, the government had put out a, a tender to buy 500 gigalitres of, of water for environmental flows and we were the largest private owner and we knew that it was a bit of a drag on our balance sheet. It was worth a lot on our balance sheet at that time, you know, with the decoupling of land and water um, in New South Wales and we just saw a great opportunity to be able to to, to liquidate that portfolio and, and potentially treat water as an input rather than an asset um, you know if there was water to be used it was going to be cheap if there wasn't it was going to be expensive and, and again the drag as an asset and i think once that decision was made that probably led into you know the decision to sell down the farmland assets
1: as well but to me it was it was actually driven more so by sort of the impact of Australian agriculture, of that flood-drought cycle, being stretched as far as we were across the state, like we were always in drought or flood somewhere. And that, um, so it was 24 properties. A lot of capital, profit was nothing to write home about overall. And we went, well, do we really want to be so into ag? and we thought, like, we've always had an environmental bent in everything we've done. That whole water, rivers were definitely over allocated. The governments did a shit job managing water allocations. When they originally did it, they gave water, and you're meant to develop it within three years. That didn't happen with most of the licences. They were called sleeper licences. Government had the ability just to tear them up. They refused to, so everyone who actually spent the money developing got diluted down over over the years when like, these guys would hang on to their water for 20 years not do anything and then go sell it to someone who wanted to use it and it just became harder and harder and uh, so the rivers were poorly managed, didn't have enough water flow and we went well and we kill two birds here we can get some cash off the table. We knew at that point that there would be a number of the farms that we would offload. And then once we started offloading, some, we went, well, do we actually want to be there sort of in this middle scale? And, and we went, yeah, probably not. And we did a family reorganization and just continued. I had two farms <clears throat> until what, th- what, three or four years ago and someone came and knocked on the door and I went, well, I don't see the value in those farms there. So we, I exited then, and so today I've got a couple of what I'll call Small hobby scale type farms um, just south of Sydney.
0: So that's the the background and the history of the group. Let's now move into both of your careers and and into your investment philosophy and and some of your other activities, Marcus. Bridge Lane Group seeded, I think, in around about 09. Tell us about the the business, what it does, and and how it's evolved over the past decade or so. Yeah, I mean, it's
2: as John has said, it was a you know in 2009. We were able to reorganize how the family was structured. We took the view that you know there's only two second generation members of the family and, and John and I would be able to kind of have these two family offices um, and effectively control our own destinies and be able to do what we felt um, we wanted to do with our you know uh, respective families so effectively, Bridge Lane became a family office, even though I never called it that. Um, I guess I didn't feel like a, I earned the, the merit to call Bridge Lane a family office but it's no different than any other one. You know, it was a diversified asset um, investor. was, you know, still had I still had Argentina at that at that time. So we still had farmland as as our you know core component of our portfolio up until two thousand and twenty-two. We had some real estate, uh, commercial real estate. We also uh, had some cash, and we started deploying the cash into things that I thought I knew about uh, growth investments, but actually I didn't know very much about. Uh, mining exploration and mining development stocks, and a bunch of things that I that I put in. But I did um, make some early investments into t- some technology companies, and uh, cut my teeth doing it um, back in two thousand nine, two thousand ten, and was lucky enough to to come across some good ones, which you know um, that really started the I guess more formal thesis of investing in innovation and venture capital.
0: And why technology? What did you like about that asset class? And, and what was some of the or what have been some of the key wins that you've had?
2: Yeah, I think it's more of just the personal curiosity. Um, you know, just always curious about new things, about what else was around the corner, and, and just how, I you know I think we do all as a family have an entrepreneurial mindset, and I think that kind of enables us to, to gravitate toward new things and technologies. I guess in my in my um, in my life was something that I was interested in. You know, the first investment, I guess of note, was, was one that came on, on my desk. It was called a Mason, which I actually called Compass back then, which is a, a mobile virtual network operator in Australia running off of Optus um, wholesale towers. Uh, and what was funny about that is it was pre-launch, it was, you know, first investment meeting. You know, we, we led the, the first round of funding, but at the same time, I got something else on my desk, which was a lease proposal from Compass uh, Telecom to take up a couple of floors in the building. And I thought, well, this is interesting. I could actually just hedge this one off. And uh, on one side, you know, take the rental from them. And they were quite, quite aggressive in how much they wanted to occupy and, and, and obviously flip that around as an investment as well. And it ultimately became a great investment, great set of founders, great story on how they executed. Um, you know, it wasn't our best win ever in terms of um, overall multiples, but, but it was a very, uh, very well thought out investment. Some other winners came out of that. Air Tasker, which was one that's um, I'm very happy about, and the relationships I built with Tim and John, are the two founders out of that, were were great, and and you know did many things with them. Subsequent to that, uh, Founding Tankstream Ventures, which was uh, a venture fund uh, with them mm-hmm. at that time. We invested in a company called Go One, which is still around today, and you know. <coughs> That we led the first seed round in that, and the first couple of rounds subsequent to that, at you know, five million dollar pre money valuation, and now it's worth three billion. So, you know, we, we definitely think that we can. You know, I've, I personally think I've got the knack to, to be able to pick these kind of early, early pre revenue companies. So,
0: I, I find that exciting. Similarly, for you, Johnny, you've carved out your own pathway through Twynham Investments, your family office that, that focuses on a number of distinct areas. Let's start to, with your approach to investment. What 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 areas or sectors interest you most? So we have a chunk of asset of real estate assets,
1: generally regional, um, couple of Sydney CBD or near CBD assets, but uh, generally a sort of most of it. Dollar-wise, it's sort of in regional subdivisions, uh, but is that something I love? It's not something we do um, more than love. The environmental space is what sort of interests me a lot more, and we spend a lot more of our time on. Everyone talks about global warming, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, I went to COP four in 1998, so been uh, into it for a very long. Time we're investments in 2000 with CSIRO trying to find a, a vaccine for anti-methanogens, which is what creates methane in ruminants. So today we're early stage investors in decarbonisation technologies that we think can make a real impact in emissions. So whether that's sequestering or reducing emissions, so it could be a new way of making cement or a, different air conditioning system or way of managing waste so it doesn't end up in landfills etc we're laser focused on it and I just launched a fund a couple of eight weeks ago or so um, to see if other people want to come along the journey with us um, but there are a lot of, there a lot of fun staying and get involved in sort of decarbonisation anti-global warming etc but um, not many have the sort of focus and background that we have.
0: Why are you so passionate about it? Clearly you can see that the passion coming out of you. You've been doing it for, for over two decades now. What, what drives your, your passion for, for this particular area?
1: Well, look, I love the environment. Like from, I guess, early days on the farms and love, love being in, the, in nature. Um, and reality is, as a human race, we're totally stuffing it. And there's limited time to fix it. The whole way the world measures how much we're succeeding by GDP growth is it's fundamentally flawed. The only way you get GDP growth is by buying someone buying more widgets more widgets require more more uh, resources and yeah you can't beat it so you, the only I don't think humans I think humans are too selfish to change their way of life. you get some yes you' like, like the ten percent who'll totally change to make something better but the majority of us were too selfish to change basically anything so the only way we can save ourselves is by using less resources to make those
0: widgets. Marcus, I want to ask you, with in in regard to Bridge Lane Group in particular, you mentioned some of the successes that you've had in the technology sector over the years. What are the the investment fundamentals you look at prior to deploying capital in technology ventures or ventures more broadly? It, it really depends on, on on who the
2: individuals are. But I, as an investor, I think I think the main thing is is intuition, right? And and you know we can talk about what what metrics we specifically look at how we break that down but at the end of the day it's really getting to know founders getting to know their ideas understanding their vision having a good uh you know a good intuition around the individual the business model and then diving deep into that and understanding it a bit more um, making sure that it makes sense depends on the portfolio construct you know obviously it's not just the one investment that's gonna you know uh, need to be successful it's actually the portfolio investments that together uh, need to be successful so if it's a power law theory that you're trying to go after, which is every one investment needs to be a fund returner, then you have to assess that business that you're looking at to make sure that it is a fund returner, even if it's on paper um, at the very beginning. If you're more of a concentrated um, investor that's looking for higher conviction bets, smaller portfolio, then you can afford to, to have a smaller market size, but most of them need to turn out to be something rather than nothing um, at some point. So, I mean, it really does come down to, um, you know, a mix of everything. There's no one trick, um, but I think really intuition from the investor side and uh, seeing the personal characteristics in the founders when, when we look at them and making sure that they're, you know, that they've
0: got hustle, that they've got, um, you know, subject matter expertise, that they're able to build teams. And you referenced in and Airtasker before. What do you think made those two businesses successful in and of themselves? Was it the leadership? Was it just timing? Was it the product and market fit? Was it a combination of, of many different things?
2: Yeah, it's a combination of many different things. I mean, Amazim, particularly great leadership, a team that had done it before in Germany, um, brought to Australia by another guy named Peter O'Connell, who's, you know, Optus background. So just very strong leadership, very strong team, very very clear plan airtasker was much more novel you know it's a it's a gig economy marketplace you need to build a supply side and you need to build a demand side very hard always kind of going against against the the grain on that and having to build something that was quite complicated requires a certain amount of determination in the founder and i think those two guys tim and john um you know they were quite unique in terms of their their attributes um, you know didn't need to build a strong team from the very beginning I mean it needed to be a strong team but it wasn't a big team so you know they eventually had to learn that as they as they progressed to build you know bigger and stronger teams that could actually become more of a corporation yeah and then you know again go one which is you know still very much um, you know a winner for us and huge and, and those guys as well um, Andrew and Chris have built exceptional businesses out of out of out of nothing really from the beginning.
0: Johnny in the same vein for you, what do you look at when an investment comes across your desk, particularly in the area that you're investing in, you'd get so many different proposals. You referenced the, the new fund that launched eight weeks ago or so. What are you what are you looking for in some of these ventures? So looking for impact like
1: what do we think the decarbonisation impact will be. So and there are lots of ways you can look at that. But we do look at like true impact on is it going to actually make a difference if it if it's successful and the other real thing is what we think the founder and the team can do and reality is we like a lot of what we're doing is very early stage so it's like the mad professor comes up with something and how does that person perceive themselves evolving over the next sort of five three to five years as the business hopefully is successful and needs to grow and because the skill sets change so much so is it somebody who sits back and acknowledges yeah look I'm here for two years managing the whole thing then I need to set back as a CTO and get someone else in as the CEO or whatever um, depending on the skill sets etc so how open they are to evolving with time and and something we've really learned is sort of what control mechanisms they have over the business, because potentially you evolve down three years and what they sort of, what we thought they were going to do, they don't do. And if you, if they've got all the, all the uh, control mechanisms sort of tied up with the board and voting shares, etc., you really can't influence a change. So it's really important for us to understand things are going well in the business, or not going well in the business in three years, how do we actually, or how do the various incoming investors manage the direction and the people
0: to to grow and be successful. For investors that, that aren't subject to matters in this field, clearly there's so many different funds, everybody's talking about decarbonisation and how to reduce impact, how do you distill The noise from reality, and particularly for investors that want to invest in the fund, how do they make sense of it all? Look, I think it's really hard.
1: So, especially as a a new fund, like without track records, and like we've got a track record of investing but not in a proper fund structure, and like you can't just pick and choose which, which companies but we have been running sort of a proper fund the last three years but that's the only thing we can sort of point towards so that's a real difficulty in getting people to put money forward but we've gone like we've gone in with a real quite low minimum so people can put in a hundred grand and then come along for the ride if they like it in a few years time and we're doing another fund hopefully they'll write much bigger checks so all we can say is we have track record I'm passionate about it you don't get many people who have been doing it for the period that we have um, and continue to do it so yeah there's a lot of trust by an incoming investor on
0: what I believe in. Marcus, I want to ask you about the, the Australian technology landscape. Clearly, it's evolved so much over the last 14 years or so that, that you've been involved. What have been the, the key learnings and the key changes in the, in the landscape that you've noticed? Yeah, I mean, it feels like a long
2: time, but it's actually not really. I mean, you know, since 2010, 2012, I would say, is when, I guess, the new era of venture capital really took place in Australia you need, it's not like venture capital as an asset class was new, um, it's always existed, but I think in terms of who we see today as operators in terms of investing, um, you know, a lot of the funds that are very active today and especially the larger ones or the mid-tier ones, you know, they started either in 2012 or after. You know, same, you know, I guess Tankstream Labs, and we touched on that earlier, conversing is, you know, it's a co-working space that, you know, started out in 20. 2012 um, there really wasn't any co-working in sydney other than fish that was pre we work and if you just think of WeWork, Where it started where it got to it being a 40 billion dollar market cap company to now being worth maybe 250 million dollar In that period of 10 years, it's just gone up down but co-working is here today, and I think That's just symbolizes What's potentially happened in a 10-year period in the ecosystem as a whole you've got things of just you know, evolved to the degree that probably nobody had, nobody probably would have understood back in 2010. Uh, I think it's been very successful and, and standing on the shoulders of, you know, other successes as well. You We've know, got great stories here, you know, starting with Alassian, Canva, the ones that everybody knows about. But I think, yeah, it, it, it's definitely changed. Uh, but we're a long way away. We're a long way away from, obviously, the big markets in the world, we're a long way around, away from being, you know, top five or top seven venture market. And um, you know, I think we, there, is, there is a motivation to do it, there's an impetus to do it. I think the government also um, has a desire to do it, and, and I think you know, eventually Australia will be a top five player in terms, of, in terms of venture and innovation.
0: Tankstream Labs launched in 2012, and then I think a year or so later came Tankstream Ventures. Just take us in, inside how that occurred, that, how that business occurred, how that deal occurred, and, and then where it started and where it ended up. Yeah, I mean, that was quite just serendipitous, really. I mean,
2: I invested in Airtasker and the two guys needed some space, had some spare floor that had nobody on it. So I told the guys, why don't you just take this corner. A bunch of people would come in and visit them and say, hey, this is a pretty good little office space. Can we can we set up a desk here? And we're like, yeah, there's actually something to be had here. So, you know, with Tim and John, and we also set up and Labs and then subsequently thought that maybe this is a good way of getting it, you know our foot in the door and becoming known uh, and that rolled into well, we can set up a structure here and 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 set up a formal fund under an ESVCLP Which is you know tax-free um, gains up to a certain level in Australia and, um, Just seemed like a wise decision and, and it's worked out great, you know, obviously uh, The fund is sitting on some good returns. We never uh, Built out a second fund, but that's what I'm doing now with side stage ventures. We all got distracted um, Really Air Tasker was obviously, you know, great Journey for them. I built a company called BrickX in, in the property space, which I can t- touch on a little bit later. But you know, now I'm I'm, I'm really committed to to building this um, this new firm with side stage ventures and, and the partners that are involved in that. And what's the focus for
0: side stage?
2: Yeah, and it's it's an early stage fund, sector agnostic, but stage specific, pre-seed, seed, um, very much trying to help founders from that zero to one journey. You know, we're not we're not um, we're not precious about being on the board you know we want to have a high degree of, of helpfulness to the to the founder we, we actually uh, ben uh, uses the term of, of helpfulness to check size ratio and we, we want to have the best helpfulness check size ratio out of any other investor and you know we'll, we'll keep um keep trying to find that top one percent of founders in australia so yeah it, it, you know you can't be a vertical investor in in, in an ecosystem that's so small in Australia, I I believe at this point.
1: It's it's just there's not enough deal flow. So if we want to be in the very best deals, you have to be sector agnostic. In our business, we don't find a lot in Australia as yet. It's certainly the flow is increasing dramatically um, in the last sort of 18 months, but it's still, uh, most of our flow is offshore at
0: this stage. And what do you think that is? Are we that far behind? Do we just not have the, the mass?
1: On the environmental side, I just think probably with that the political crap which was going on for so many years of no clear direction. On yes, we actually believe in in global warming and let's try and do something about it. No point naming names, but um, I think that was probably a negative to to the t- to people going oh yeah decarbonisation. Let's really get into it, and that's obviously changed in the last sort of. Two
0: three years, and where do you think it can can get to? Can Australia become a leader in the field? It depends on the individual. So there are smart people everywhere who comes up with the best ide the
1: best idea on how to produce electricity or to decarbonise steel or cement. I've got no idea. It'll be like sure you've got the opportunity to but whether that really smart person has got the comes up with the idea and got the dedication to make it happen and knocks on the right doors. They're smarts and there's a whole lot of luck and on the way as well. Like I don't think there's a person who's really successful in life who hasn't had a bit of luck.
0: Now we run a property business so it would be remiss of me not to ask you both about property development and investment in which you have both been invested in for a long time. Now what what attracts you to this asset class, perhaps starting with yourself, Johnny? I got involved in the G F C when it was cheap. That was it, it was just that's
1: where I started. Um, pretty much all the assets I own in property were bought there or soon thereafter. Yeah, well, I've bought a couple of things since then, but that was yeah. And we got involved in a prop in a construction property development business in Queensland. So we actually ran a construction business there for a number of years. Got out of that. It reminded me a bit of cotton trading. <laughs> um, yeah, but look. We, I guess the frustration in that whole property business, like we've got a subdivision in our 13 years we've been working on getting the approvals. And if I put the layout on the table, it's hardly changed in 13 years. And when we purchased it 13 years ago, we were thinking, like, sell a block for 120000 bucks. now it's 350000 The only loser is the average Australian. And we can't keep having the immigration rates without... Creating house. I know it's in the press now, but we've been talking about that for we've been talking about personally for like 10 years. Like it just makes no sense. Um, we it, something's got to change. Someone has to give NIMBYism councils. We've got a project uh, north of the harbour where council wants a commercial makes it's not profitable commercial. It's in a high demand area right near metro, new metros. You just go like it's madness something has to change and I know everyone's been saying it for a bloody decade so but it is what it is and the the cost of housing in this country is absurd and that also goes to some of the tax breaks you get for owning houses which I don't think are fair because you can't expect people who are working what, 40, 60, 50, 60 hours a week and struggling to pay for accommodation like that's just I don't think it's right.
2: Fundamentally, the reason we're invested is is I guess just two two main reasons. And anything that's excluding residential, it's really because I think it's a great wealth preserver. And I think you know if you include farmland in the bucket of real estate, what our father did was a great example uh, in hindsight of what you know farmland can do in terms of wealth preservation over a period of you know four or five decades. And I think, you know, commercial re- real estate is, is in a similar bucket, um, you know, the lower the, the income generation, typically the better the wealth preservation. In terms of residential real estate, I, I, it's the opposite. I saw, you know, an opportunity that, um, you know, the returns were, were attractive. I actually didn't know anything about residential real estate. Um, when, when we started to get into it, we've done 10 projects to date and, and I um, I had to tap, you know, some friends that, that I knew that were in the industry and, and very well, but very knowledgeable about the industry to be able to get into it as, as, a, as a developer and, and yeah, Bridgeland's gone on to, to do 10 sites. Um, to date, all in Sydney, all in areas we know within, you know, five to seven kilometer radius of the CBD, and like we stick to things that we, that we know and, and just don't want to get suckered into going in areas that, that, we're, that we're not, you know, fully comfortable with. So I think that it's just the main two buckets. And when I look at the family office construct of Bridge Lane, I look at it very much as like, what's my preservation bucket and what's my growth
1: bucket? And I split them out. And real estate's in that preservation side. When I don't look at any of that at all, I have zero allocation strategy or whatever. We just, what feels good or of interest on particular
0: moment is what we do. And clearly, you referred to it earlier, there's been challenges uh, from a planning perspective. What have been some of the, the learnings other than, you know, the, the difficulty of the planning system through, through investing in property? Just make sure you allow for it in your numbers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Really, like there's nothing else. You have no idea what the timeline's going to be, like you'll speak to the planning and say, oh, this will take three years, or they have actually no idea, like you, you can say, in theory it's meant to be three years, but it could be six years, it could be whatever. You might get lucky and it's three years. So obviously you buy something with planning approval, it's pretty simple. But if you want to sort of go further up the risk curve, well, you, you just need to understand where it is. But we're lucky in, the, in Australia where the prices have increased. I've done projects in Europe where I had issues with planning or etc. and like you carrying cost, but your sale price at the end is no different, so your, mar- your margin's gone to zip. So yeah, we're really, that's a it's a no- an anomaly in Australia compared to the rest of the world. You know, when we look at any of those development sites, it's it's it's
2: different, I mean, it's going up the risk curve, as Johnny said. So, I mean, we were prepared to not go up the risk curve. Um, you know, property development is still risky, obviously, um, but we wouldn't be looking for a new rezoning sites. We just would buy a smaller boutique um, sites that would, you know, fit into, I guess, a premium uh, small floor play residential development and work within, within the, you know, the controls that, that, um, that were in place and, and never push the boundaries. So be able to put it down in Excel and actually work it out without having, you know, assumptions made about the future. Obviously, sale prices would have to play off, and then your cost of construction would have to play off, and you know, pre-sales, but everything we did was pre-sales, and never had an issue with the banks, and they were always very supportive, and we were able to do that, and play within the guardrails quite well, but you know, even though we think that they were amazing developers and great returns, um, you, know, you sacrifice a bit on the upside if, if, if you do it that way.
0: And what's your appetite like for, for investing in these sort of projects at the moment and, and has your allocation been reduced as a result of you know, construction price changes or are you more bullish on, on where, where it can end up? I mean Lane is not
2: looking at, at developing any more residential sites at the time. The team has actually disbanded a bit, they've gone off to do their own thing and we just will continue to probably support them under their own uh, umbrella rather than us be a developer. So I will, I will look at residential, uh, just real estate generally, as an asset class and see how I participate in that. But, but there's nothing that's specific to the current environment. Obviously, you know, you know, you have to take in, like, I mean, I wouldn't go right now and go and pay three and a half four percent 4% for a commercial office building. <laughs> Vacancy rates are real and, and there's some serious questions around what, what, you know, what's gonna happen with the commercial real estate market.
0: Clearly, the the returns on offer for commercial real estate can be uh, very attractive. Do you see, in comparison to some of the other asset classes, do you see a long-term future for for appetite in that sector or uh, the the gains on offer from investing in uh, decarbonisation or technology more attractive?
1: From my perspective, I wouldn't invest in a commercial piece of real estate because I just don't have a love for it etc. Like I manage this building which is Marcus's now for I don't know how many years but yeah I don't, just don't enjoy it. Marcus likes it so that's that's great. You have to enjoy coming to work every day. I, enjoy like it. Enjoy it. <laughs> I do go to work every day. <laughs> but I mean, enjoy what you do when you come into yeah, work. Yeah anyway. exactly so look it might be way more successful in the long run but I just don't care There's only so much you can do with so much money and kids need to work one day as well so we've got a couple we own half of Huntley which is a 7000 uh, lot subdivision in the Hunter so we've got plenty of exposure to real estate and we've got a big block in as I said north of the harbour so yeah I'm happy with our commercial real estate well, commercial residential real estate exposure and we're sort of playing around with another project potentially, which is sort of outskirts Sydney subdivision, but we'll see whether that happens or not. But yeah, the decarbonisation is sort of a core
0: interest. Let's close out our discussion with a few more general topics. Johnny, perhaps starting with you, what have been the the key learnings or lessons that you can, can share with us that you've learned throughout your career? Having the right people
1: is critical. I think that's the biggest thing and and I think uh, when you think someone's not working out, you're best off cutting it soon. So often you'll go, well, people say, oh, better the devil you know than the devil you don't and that's good to a degree but at some point if you're really not comfortable with the person, you're better off getting rid of it or changing that. The person pretty quickly. I think that's the biggest thing I've learned. Do things you enjoy, and um, when done things over time, we, think we haven't enjoyed. Like with any business, there are things in the day which you don't enjoy. Like you've got to look at the accounts and all that once, whether that's once a week, once a month, or whatever. And I don't, unless you're an accountant, you probably don't like looking at the accounts. It's like great if it's big black number at the bottom and not red that's that's a positive but like yeah so you need to have that discipline to do the things that have to be done Um, but overall you need to enjoy what you're doing I think to have any success in it. Marcus from your perspective?
2: Now there's a few different lessons from different people. I mean, coming to the farmland thing, which I wanted to add earlier is, is really, you know, it's a lifestyle, not a business. Dad always said that from day one. I think we have all kind of appreciated that. And I will still continue to hone farmland and, and Johnny as well to, to a degree in our portfolios, uh, maybe to different levels, but I think it's important to our families. Um, then, uh, yeah, you know, dad always said, you know, I don't care what you do as long as you're good at it. That's always plays on my mind all the whole time. Um, and I, I actually really value that.
1: I'm not sure if even, it's good at but if you do the best you can at it.
2: I think Christine Campbell, who was, you know, somebody who worked a lot with Dad. She's a bit older when she started working with me than with, than with Johnny. But, you know, she always taught me the importance of governance, the detail, um, you know, making sure that you, 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 if, if you're delegating, you're still on top, of, on top of whatever it is that you are delegating. And that, that's always been important to me as well. And then, yeah, I guess, you know, coming down to, to generally, it's just on decisions, it's trust your gut and your intuition.
0: Key challenges for you both, what what have they been and have you been able to overcome them? Not being, you know, jack of all,
2: master of none, I can easily get distracted and, and try and build some new business or, you know, get too involved in something that's too small and not really focusing. Um, that's you know, was, I guess, worse in my younger years, but it's still something that's very true today and I still, it's a constant battle. So for me, I've, you know, really set a target. I think I'm, I'm f- almost 42, uh, a lot younger than Johnny. And I, you know, I feel like I've got 20 years left of creating something and then, you know, I want to pass it on to my children. I want to be the supervisor, the monitor and, you know, jump off to Europe and spend a lot of time there and, and do other things. So. I've got this thing of what do I really focus on for the next 20 years to really be able to build something and I think you know side stage ventures and venture generally is something I'm really excited about.
1: There are all, all sorts of challenges and they evolve and if I look back on the last 40 years there have been challenges vary all but all the time. Um, I still go back to the, cha- the biggest challenge is having the right people in the right jobs yeah. so whether you look at sort of Argent, trying to manage Argentina and like the complications in the country like that with inflations and government interventions and all those sorts of things like who having people you can trust doing that banking relationships which have changed so much like 20 years ago if you wanted to buy a building or a farm whatever you ring up Jimmy and say Jimmy oh, I need 15 million bucks to buy this Oh, send me over what you think the business. Do you send over a spreadsheet? And a couple of days later, say, okay, yeah, fine. It's changed so much, and um, so they're all how those things evolve. And like with every business, you get times when things are tight. In the old days, the banks would sort of support you. Today, they sort of tend to run. Um, I I think that's that's interesting. Like it, it used to there was much more of partnership the old days, um, when today, well, I saying that I think it's somewhat improving again, but there was a period in there where you just went, uh, I've refused to put money, in. like when we had lots of cash, I'm going, well, I'll try not to even give it to the banks or put it somewhere else so that um, the banks don't, just to, because that pissed me off on something else soon previously. I think you
2: know, the world is just a different place nowadays and the yeah. inter, the interconnectivity between everyone and and you know the, the rapid pace of which media gets out and the way you know people can assemble things and, and so forth is mm. is is just going to be a challenge generally because you know we are living in a I guess I would probably say a challenging environment from conflicts, from um, you know social issues, from um, I guess a home and all that. So that's yeah, like, so, a, you know, it's, yeah, it's a, a challenge. Time. So I think just general, on a, on a macro point of view and just societal point of view, it's, it's not
1: a tough time. Everyone in Australia, people are better off today than they've ever been. So you can't actually say it's a tough time overall. No, Some well, people, well, even globally, people are better off today than they've ever been. Look at everyone in India, every Indian's better off, well everyone, I'm sure there'll be some who aren't, but Indians on average are a lot better off than they were five years, 20 years. Um, Probably the Russians and the Ukrainians not, and some of the poor Sudanese not, but in general most of the world is better off. Um, They've got more stuff, there's less poverty, better educated. We all say it's a tough life, but I don't think it's any tougher than it was previously it's a lot different and we like I don't like a lot of the changes we see and when people start telling me I'm meant to put it to my email a him her them they whatever I'm like fuck off I'm not so uh, yeah the pressure on trying to conform to what maybe a minor majority of people think we should be doing really annoys me like yeah everyone's meant to be able to have a a say on what they think without being pigeon holders racist sexist something ist um, yeah
0: I find complicated I want to ask you about that in fact two two questions to to finish what are the the long-term opportunities for Australia? What's our competitive advantage? You both travel widely, so you'd see Australia in, in context to other countries, but vice versa. What what are the long-term uh, hurdles or challenges that we have to get over as a nation if we want to keep growing and, and be productive?
2: I, I mean, I think, you know, we all know where we come from, from a natural resources point of view, and, and even ag to, to a degree. I think, I, I mentioned it earlier, I think, you know, we do have a big, a big role to play in terms of innovation. You know, we've got a very um, educated um, workforce. We do have migration issues, and we need to improve that. But I think, you know, there is a part where we can, you know, become a, a, a large exporter in terms of our uh, GDP, in terms of services, uh, innovation, sorry, rather than just services, um, and, and obviously mining and agriculture. So I think that's an opportunity, and I think, um, whether people like it or not, I mean, the, uh, probably defence is going to be something that's going to happen if, if it plays out as, as per the government's desires over the next sort of couple of decades. That'll become a big industry as well.
1: I think the positives are, as Marcus said, the negatives or the issues, the concerns are housing. Um, it's hard to see how we expand um, population and overall welfare of all Australians without. without housing becoming getting into a better equilibrium high house prices, high rent prices mean you need higher wages if they get too high well you're not competitive worldwide so really better off with a more median sort of house price or accommodation cost um, so that you can be competitive Um, and yeah that union impact on where some costs go like you see like the road works, the lollipop, Zika apparently, I think in New South Wales the average cost pay is 28 bucks, if it's union it's sort of 80 bucks in Victoria it's 130 bucks. So how can someone holding a lollipop get paid 100 bucks, it makes zero sense to me. Those sorts of things are the concerns, every country probably has them, um, but when you know you've got an issue you probably should try and do something about resolving it. The housing price is not simple though because it impacts a whole lot of people and tax benefits and we've seen over the last sort of half dozen years the political discussions about it and how vehemently opposed certain groups are. I mean, I think you know we've, we've
2: had high labour costs competitively, comparatively to other countries for a while now and I think you know we should just continue to look into what we maybe have a competitive advantage in, is that is you know again innovation in robotics and you know even today with artificial intelligence. What well, can we build on that we just don't need the manpower to do it um, and that'll that'll put us much more on a level playing field if we can do that.
0: Johnny and Marcus Kelbetsa, pleasure having the opportunity to have you on our program. Thanks so much for for sharing your journey and your insights. Thank you. Bill.